Hello, Manifestors, and welcome to another episode of Manifest Destiny. I am Blair, and I'm here with your host, Rebecca. Rebecca, say hi. Hello. Hello. <laughs> you're so, We're back. Another you're, episode. You're so weird. Um, you just had like the most sensuous beginning. It sounded like you were like a phone sex operator for a second. It was like very like, hello, Manifestors. Hello, Manifestors. That's how I would do it. It was a little... Yeah. I hear what you're saying. I was uncomfortable, and it started me off on an uncomfortable note, so... You're right. Thanks. I made everybody feel weird about it. Um. Anyways, how was your week, Rebecca? It was fine. No major historical events to report. Um, what it's about the mild. 36 inches of snow? Oh, that's true. We did have a lot of snow. Yeah, that was kind of fun. It's fun because it's all still, like, really beautiful and pristine, and it hasn't been, like, completely disgusted by salt. Is that what does it? The brown stuff? It looks bad when it's, like, three <laughs> days old, but right now it all looks beautiful and glossy and oh no that does not last in new york it's like 35 minutes that it's nice and Mm -hmm. now it's just knee deep puddles everywhere i don't even have boots i don't know why i don't have boots i just never brought them but yeah it's been so it's been a rough week for that reason i feel like it's like i was so pumped to go sledding like i saved two pizza boxes so i could go sledding on them oh my god i mean i don't have a sled here (laughs) so i was literally like this is gonna be our dynamic and then it was literally just so windy and shitty all day on monday and tuesday that i i didn't even get to sled and now it's gross so wow Kind of a starting on a low, even though we're about to cover two awesome things. Um, Rebecca, take it away. Yeah, okay. So I got a, a little ID for you here on another unsung hero. He's he's sung in some circles, some small elite academic circles, one might say. Okay. Um, today we're going to learn about Carter G. Woodson. That's the best kind of circle are, there is, though. <laughs> so honestly, I mean, of course, of course. It's naturally. fine. Oh, Are you Carter familiar? B. Woodson. Oh, I'm I'm just a tiny bit familiar. I just know that he was okay. the founder of Black History Month. That's right, because it's February, and really, it's we'll February get into it. We're we'll get into in. it. We're digging in. Get into it. February is Black History Month, so in honor of Black History Month, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the daddy of Black History Month, Carter G. Woodson. So Carter was born December 19th, 1875. What do we got? December 19th. December 19th. Okay, so he's a Sagittarius. Love that for him. Lots of fire, okay. lots of passion. Super direct. Yep. They're the archers. Super direct. So they kind of yep. like to like take their position, draw back the arrow, and kind of be very precise wow. about what they do. They're very considered, measured people in a way. But yep. the other way, they're still a fun fire sign. They're still fun to be around. They're passionate. They're creative. They are bringing the heat, but they are also and, – and, you know, and they're just adventurers. They're explorers. Their life on Earth mm. is about travel and about, like, spreading their – ideas far and wide they're wow yeah tell me more (laughs) wow i mean that pretty much sums it up but i think we we just did a sagittarius didn't we yeah we did but it just like it feels like it fits every time a little bit different oh yeah it hit it hits different with carter g woodson i'll tell you that much i can tell that that man is a sag and he's also like right on the line of becoming a capricorn which is a much more serious like task oriented Mm. sign wow wow so i kind of see him as that tracks and i don't know what his like political leanings were but if i had to guess just based on the fact that he's so close to capricorn i would say that he was more of like of the like mlk like we shall slowly over overcome mindset yes and no we'll get into it so he's a cusp so he's a cusper wow wow so 
Carter was born to former slaves in New Canton, Virginia, and his mother was named Anne Eliza Riddle, and his father was James Henry Woodson. His father helped the Union soldiers during the Civil War and then supported his family as a free man uh, doing carpentry work and farming. And Woodson's father was a big influence on his life. He was illiterate, as was his mother, but was a very educated, informed man, no less, just in, you know, you don't have to be literate to be educated. So Woodson later quoted his father as saying, learning to accept insult, to compromise on principle, to mislead your fellow man, or to betray your people is to lose your soul. And that really stuck with young Carter. Wow. Who, yeah, I mean, what a casual thing for your dad to tell you. Yeah, that's not chill, dad. Go on. So though Carter had to skip a lot of his primary school education to help out on the farm, he still managed just to kind of like take to his coursework, like a duck to water. So when he turned 17, he moved to Huntington, Virginia to attend Douglas High School, which was a new secondary school specifically for black people. He had to attend school part-time because he was working as a coal miner to pay his way through Huntington. And by 1895, he'd finally raised enough money and had enough time to enter Douglas High full-time and received his high school diploma two years later. So right after he became a high school graduate, he became a high school teacher in Winona, Virginia. And wow. in 1900... <laughs> so he was like 18? Literally. And then in 1900, <laughs> he went on to become the principal of Douglas High School. Oh so he God, literally I love like, that for him. He graduated in 1897, and by 1900, he was the principal of the high school. Like, oh, yo, hell yeah. Look at him. Like, I he love just, that. Like, I do, too. I mean, really, that's some power right there. Like, you go back to your school, and you're like, not only am I the teacher, like, I am the I captain am the now. Like, yeah, <laughs> excellent. Excellent. So from 1901 to 1903, he earned his Bachelor of Literature by taking part-time classes at Berea College in Kentucky. He graduated from college and went on to become a school supervisor in the Philippines in 1907. He then like took a little European tour, went to Asia. He studied briefly at Sorbonne University in Paris, just had like a little walkabout. And then he returned to the United States, got his master's at the University of Chicago, and then his PhD in history from Yale, oh no, I'm sorry, from Harvard, where he was only, he was the second black man ever to graduate from Harvard after W.E.B. Du Bois to get a doctorate. Wow. However, he's now got a bachelor's, a master's, and a PhD, and no universities are willing to hire him as a professor because they're all racist. So he just had to keep teaching in public schools, being like the world's most overqualified public school teacher. It's like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Literally. So he went on to become the principal of Armstrong Manual Training School in D.C. And finally, after, you know, being a principal numerous times, teaching God knows how many high school students, he got a job teaching at the college level at Howard University, which has been a historically all-black college. And then he quickly became the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Howard because this because man he is, is taking names in the academic like, world. He's like, I would he like moved your chair so sir. quickly. <laughs> like he works in these places for two years, and he's like, great, great, great. I know everything there is to know about your institution. And I'm the dean now, and they're like, all right, I am the dean. This now. is right. I love that. So during his like lengthy career in academia where he's been studying English and history, he like started to get the vibe that the American Historical Association, to which he was like a paying member, really didn't have any interest in learning anything about black history. And they also did not let him attend conferences, though he was a paying member of the AHA, which is just classic. What year is this? 1918? 
this is like at this point like 1910 like that still feels super fucked up yeah yeah it's all bad but he decides academia really needs to find room quickly for black historians because it's a very white dominated profession so he decides you know what i'm going to create my own institutional structure not just a school but my whole like curriculum ethos structure to make it possible for black students to like properly study history so he lacked the funds to do this himself, and he's like, you know who is going to pay for this? Who? The Carnegie Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation. So you got to love going after, like, the biggest, whitest money of all time. to They fund are, like, the Carnegies on, like, every single college campus that I toured when I was in high school, the library is named Carnegie because mm-hmm. Andrew Carnegie was literally like, you know what? I like books. <laughs> and I am, it's like, you know what? It's, it's good to hear that he was spending some of his money on black history and not just liberal arts schools, <laughs> libraries. And it's also good for Carter to just like go and ask and be like, listen, uh, white people are going to pay for this because they are the oppressors. So and- he approached them. Okay. Love that. Yeah. For him. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they paid for it. So along with William D. Hartgrove, George Cleveland Hall, Alexander Jackson, and James Stamps, Woodson founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History on September 9th, 1915 in Chicago. And I will just say, we are using the word Negro in the historical context. It is obviously not a word we use now in any context, but this is what these things were published as at the time, and it feels wrong in a historical sense not to use those words when sure. they were what these things were named correct these are, so, primary, are we on the same page yes. these are primary documents you may yes say that okay so the purpose of what i'm now going to call the asnlh was the scientific study of the neglected aspects of negro life and history and to basically train a new generation of black people in historical research and methodology and how to really learn not only how to appreciate history and and appreciate history not necessarily as a historian because part of what Carter was super into is the idea that history isn't just for historians it should be for everyone he was really about like kind of bring history to culture so to train black people as a whole in in appreciating their their history having an understanding of it where to get it because there hasn't really been much you know literature at this point published on black history he mm-hmm. was really one of the first to start publishing dedicated books on black history Wow. So he was engaging clergymen, women's groups, fraternities. Like he really was like reaching far and wide to kind of spread awareness about the fact that black history wasn't being included in journals or or considered really in academia. So he really took the idea of history and black history beyond the classroom and extended it to the greater culture. So to back this up, he started a journal to accompany this, a journal um, that basically talked about all elements of black history. That was started in 1916. It was renamed in 2002 the Journal of African American History, and it still continued to be published this day. So since 1916, that's been going on, and we have Woodson wow. to thank for that. 105 yep. years. Crazy. Good math, Blair. Thank you. <laughs> Go on. So in 1919, and I didn't know about this, there was an intense period of racial violence, and it was called the Red Summer, um, and a thousand people, most of whom were black. where? In D.C.? It it was throughout. It was like just like a a fever moment in American history throughout the country. So a thousand people, most of whom were black, were killed between May and September, not akin to, you know, what's been happening the last few years where you've just had like concentrated moments where it seems like an innocent black person has been okay. killed for nothing. Can I just make a random parallel and tell me if I'm wrong? But is this not crazy that you're saying that this happened the summer of 1918, which was the same year as the flu pandemic? 1919. That we lived... Yeah. 19... 
1918 was when the Spanish flu came out. Yeah, 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 yeah. But this year was 1916. Sorry. No, 19, 19, 1919. But yes, I hear what you're saying. The year after uh, the outbreak of a crazy plague, there was racial unrest. So plague, outbreaks, and racial unrest go hand in hand because they really highlight the unequal you know, yeah, which horseman of the apocalypse of, of like or which? who is what? Pale horse, green horse, like what no are... four horsemen. <laughs> I don't even. You haven't I... read. No, I. You really haven't read haven't. Revelations. It's I the best haven't. book of the Bible. <laughs> well, what are the four horsemen? There's like the pale horse. That's plague. There's the black horse is death. The no, the pale horse is famine. <laughs> no, it may, it makes the green sense. horse is plague. Oh, pestilence is one of them, right? Pestilence is one of them. The black horse is death. But it's this idea that, like, all of these things, like the seven seals, the seven bowls, like, Mm -hmm. everything comes in succession. So, like, this idea that you have a plague and then you have... I think the white horse is the plague because... Yeah. What? No, because because in Game of Thrones, when people get, when people get, like, camp sickness, they call it riding the pale mare. (laughs) Oh, I don't know if George R. R. Martin is who we're taking our historical, biblical cues from. I mean, I would He does pull a lot from history. (laughs) a lot from the bible too but but you are right like in the same sense we had the spanish flu in 1918 and then this red summer the following year where black people were being killed disproportionately and it created a a moment of cultural unrest so in the wake of this and this is why i'm hopeful for our roaring 20s even though 2020 was not the best um (laughs) we're starting slow we're building to it you know people always want to romanticize the 20s like for good reason it was an exciting time but we often forget about you know some of the other big things that were happening during the 20s such as the harlem renaissance you've got marcus garvey who's starting to talk about improvements for black people in america um so in the midst of all of this, Woodson started what his, he called the New Negro History Project, which is basically to give black Americans a history to be proud of and ensure, and ensure that black history was acknowledged by these white historical gatekeepers. So this is when he really started actively trying to change curriculums and get this stuff taught in classrooms. So he was also, fun fact, super critical of the Christian church, which I live for. He <laughs> thought that it like historically and currently offered black people very limited opportunities. There were still a lot of segregated congregations at the time. So he was not about Christians generally. Didn't Christians think they practiced in what general. They he wasn't really just into like any the Christian church, like any type of Christianity he felt like was like excluding black people. What about historically black den- denominations and stuff? That's so interesting. I feel like in the history of Black people, church is such an important part in, like, the promise of salvation and all of the hymnals and stuff like that. That really surprises me that, like... Yeah. Well, he he's not be... about it. Well, it's it's fair that he's not about it, but as a black historian, you would think he would be yeah. at least not dismissive of it as, like, a very important fabric of, like, the culture. But, yeah. He was so. super critical. I mean, he wasn't dismissive as much as he wanted to, like, engage with... You know. The idea of Christianity and what that historically had meant to black communities and how mm-hmm. it was used and... And, you know, let's be real, like the Christian church was predominantly when, you know, people were slaves, white. So mm-hmm. it was it was a sign of the oppressor for him that he couldn't, you know, because we can't forget, like this man is the son of slaves that were freed. So mm-hmm. he like grew up with a first generation experience of slavery and freedom and very much feeling that freedom was tenuous and new and not something that you could take for granted. So I think that he was very critical of institutions that had worked to prop up slavery i took this class in college about like slavery and religion and they were talking about how like 
this going to church was the only thing that slaves and masters did together. Like mm-hmm. in the yeah. old South, like there'd be like separate levels of the church and whatever, but they were like all there for the same salvation. And they were talking about how like the white preachers in the white community were really focused on like the salvation and the afterlife and like the Jesus part of it. But like, if you listen to like old slave spirituals and stuff, they really are super focused on like stories like David and Goliath, like really Old mm-hmm. Testament stories where people have like earthly rewards and are like saved from bondage, which is so fucked up. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's really interesting when you when you listen to um, slave spirituals, like the imagery they use from the Bible is typically like Old Testament, not even necessarily mm. Christian things. They're not like inherently Christian things. They're, they're less yeah. about Jesus and more about like, you know. Well, I think that's free. what he means when he's being critical of the Christian church is mm-hmm. you know New Testament Christ, which has often been you know, very white, very indoctrinating and very exclusionary to many people. Totally. So he also believed that white scholars could cooperate on certain projects, but that to record and educate people about black history should predominantly be done by black historians. And this would go on to become a pretty important reference point during the 60s and 70s, where you saw a lot of younger black historians asserting that only black people were qualified to write about black history. And obviously, this is still something we talk about today, who can tell what stories, how it's done. You know, I think we often can think about this ourselves with Mm -hmm. sharing some of these stories that are not ours to tell. But I still feel like it's important, obviously, to tell a variety of stories just because you are a white person doesn't mean this is an important history to know. However, I also think having researched this ID and thinking about how, you know, segregated thought was for so long. You know, you can uh, you can have the Civil War end, you can have slavery be over, but, like, you can have segregation still continue. But, like, the idea of, of education and academia being inherently racist and then white people suddenly mm-hmm. throwing a tantrum and being like, I should be able to write about whatever I want. Like, it's this is a difficult issue. Academia I mean, I is the most, of any remaining powerful system, it's the least dismantled in that, like, the most powerful people that get all of the voices and yes. all of the airtime are straight white men. Like Yes. And the curriculums are incredibly white. Uh-huh. The curriculums are incredibly light, incredibly male. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. And it's like, and it's it's so ironic. Like, how exactly, it's so ironic that are teaching us to be global thinkers and preparing a whole generation to go out and like shape the world in a better way, and yet like they are absolutely some of the last things to improve in terms of like well, diversifying. And it's just not surprising. Oof. It's like that's where it starts <laughs> with your freaking yeah. education. Like, obviously, Truly. your exposure to these things is so much less as you go through the rest of your life. Yeah, but just that was a dark thought. Sorry. So it, it's a, but honestly, it's like a really, like, I don't have an answer for this at all. Like, where the line is for teaching black history, talking about black history, telling people black history. And I think Woodson really has a point here that, like, you have to be black to understand the history. Like, a white person can learn about it and think about it and empathize, but, like, will never truly understand. So is it ever then a white person's space to tell that story if they can't actually understand it? in a human I mean you can understand you can empathize in a human way but can you ever really no no but I mean another interesting thing is my friend who's a teacher her school is doing this whole thing for black history month where they're focusing on they're calling it like the theme is black excellence and black joy because even if you Mm. are teaching black history you're probably teaching horrific realities of slave trade or slavery or the wars or all of these terrible things and being conscripted racial injustice and and racial injustice and racial profiling and all these dead 
fucking people killed by cops, but you're not, but like you're never really focusing on like the positives, the trailblazers, like the people that brought the community joy, like what a unique culture it is. So like her school is like focusing on that this year. That's so great. I mean, I think this is part of the problem is that when we're talking about black history and trying to educate ourselves and educate others so often, the narrative is fixed on like these horrific acts of violence that are generationally traumatizing. And yeah, it's got to just be so fatiguing and exhausting for black people. So to actually have a school spend a month focusing on black excellence and black joy is fantastic. And we should definitely adopt more of that in the IDs that were and this I is, feel like this is a great example though as someone who was a like yeah. this is an example of black excellence like even though but also like slaves. the excellence so many in so many cases unfortunately is born of like incredible injustice and limitations that people are forced to overcome because there's not and you know you have a trailblazer but a trailblazer is often born of an impediment and I think that is you know and and the conclusion to this ID is that Woodson, when he was living in D.C. after he, he finally eventually, you should know, quit academia. He got finally fed up and was like, I am done with this. Get out of there, girl. They don't deserve you. He got out in the 30s. He was done. Actually, it was sooner than that. It was the late 20s. He was just like, I'm He was like, I've already been the president of a couple of colleges. I don't need it anymore. He like was back teaching public school at that point. It was just like, I'm out. I don't want to do this anymore. Like he just was finished. So what he did to fill his time was he began promoting the first what was called Negro History Week in D.C., and it was the second week of February, which was chosen to coincide with both the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. Mm-hmm. Both Aquarians. Um, yes, Aquarians. Love it. And in the 1970s, black educators and black students at the Black United Students Union at Kent State would expand Woodson's Black History Week to become the entire month of February, which is what we continue to celebrate to this day. However, Woodson would often say he was a vocal proponent of saying that Black History Week would one day be unnecessary and all Americans would willingly recognize the contributions of black Americans as legitimate and an integral part of our history, which is something I hope to. And that's really what comes full circle to me on this idea. It's always not sat well with me that we are just like Black History Month. We're going to spend this month learning about black people and then we're going to forget about black people for the rest of the year. I mean, have you heard that? Sorry, have you seen the Morgan Freeman video where they, like, interview him about Black History Month? And he's like, I fucking hate Black History Month. And they were like, okay, like, how should we, like, how should you get rid of racism? And he's like, stop talking about it. Like, stop tokenizing me. And, like, saying my history is, like, one month of the year. Seriously. And it's the fucking shortest month of the year, too. Like, we couldn't have given black people January. Like, I understand it's because of Lincoln's and But everybody kind of loves February, I feel like. Yeah, it's true, but, like, I also, People, I completely agree January with Woodson. January is such like, a miserable, terrible time. I feel like February, you're like, okay, yeah. whatever, it's a short month, we can get through this, let's pep it up, you know, yeah. that's how I feel I mean, that's February. true. People I do love like February. Corner. Although I did you just are say, the <laughs> I did just say that the snowstorm had depressed me. Yeah, but whatever. I, I think that, like, Woodson's got it right that, you know, I hope to live in a world one day where we are just, like, teaching black stories in schools and having representatives from all cultures, races, creeds at the highest level of authority and not just, like, white gatekeepers. Totally. Eat the rich. That's my ID. Are you just going to start ending all your IDs with eat the rich? Yes, every single one. <laughs> I I am, like, really deeply invested in Wall Street bets throwing over the stock market. So, like, this is who I am now. Um, I mean, I'm just pissed. I mean, I saw this meme that I totally agree with. That's like, hey, next time you guys are all going to make a bunch of money really yeah. easy, do you mind texting me? me? <laughs> like, like, what the hell is this? They did not ultimately make a bunch of money. Um, because I think they kind of did, right? 
Mm, uh, I lost. Sold, I lost steam on following that story, <laughs> but I'm deeply invested, and I hope like everybody at Robinhood goes to jail. But this is not. That's an idea for another day. We should really talk about the stock market. We should. ID. That well, would be a wild one. That would be. That would be wild. Well, I mean, we should do the bank war or something. We should get like one of our toxic male banker friends to come oh on. Oh my god, and, like, that'd be so fun. Explain capitalism. My, my roommate's capitalism. <laughs> my roommate's boyfriend really wants to hear the podcast. I, I think maybe if I invited him to do an ID, he would love it. But I won't tell him what it's called yet. I think that we should definitely have a guest that has no context for the show, and we just bring them on cold, like maybe him. <laughs> It could be like the Eric Andre show of podcasts where you just like drag an unsuspecting person onto set and do I like don't really hate that idea. Hi guys, we're back and I am here to share something that I just went down one of the deepest Wikipedia rabbit holes of my life on, and that is the Challenger explosion of January 28th, 1986. So this actually came to my attention because my fr- it was the 35th anniversary last week. So everything we're doing this month is very apropos because this is the... Thir- I feel like this whole season we've been very topical. We've been like very, it's a new very, look for us. Totally new look for us. We're topical history. <laughs> but anyway, um, so we so this all happened on January 28th, 1986, which is exactly 35 years ago. Um, for those of you who don't know, just to give you a brief review... Um, there were hundreds of peoples gathered at Cape Canaveral um, with for seven astronauts that were going onto the space shuttle Challenger. There's school children, there's press, all of their families are there. Um, the shuttle takes off and 73 seconds into the flight, catches on fire, breaks apart, explodes. All seven people are lost, sadly. Um, and the entire country was kind of traumatized together. It's kind of like people in their 40s and 50s now, like it's kind of like their 9-11. Like people are like, where were you when Challenger exploded? And for the, the reason, the answer for most of those people is they were in a freaking classroom watching it happen live. Oh. And the reason for that is that this was the beginning of the Teachers in Space program. Yes. It was the culmination of a Reagan initiative. This is during Reagan's heyday. Um, and it kind of had a dual purpose. One, everybody was so into the space program in the 60s. We go to the moon. Everybody's loving it. But there had been kind of like a waning interest in NASA to start with and they were like let's get everybody excited about space again um and then the other thing is that reagan um cut a lot of public education stuff so like he wasn't really liked by like educators and people in public schools and stuff so he was like i know what to do i'm just gonna shoot him (laughs) up into space it's gonna be amazing that'll show them teachers are cool now that'll show them um so 37 year old it showed them (laughs) so 37 year old krista mcauliffe um was a high school social studies teacher from Concord, New Hampshire, and she beat out 11,000 other teachers for the Teacher in Space program to be the teacher that gets launched into space with the Challenger. Um, And she had grown up really closely following the space program, like pre-moon landing. She was into like John Glenn, all the really early space stuff. Like she was like a true space fangirl. So when they announced this program, she was like, I have to do it. Apparently there was 11 different essays you had to write to become a finalist. And she wrote all of them. Like they were trying to like weed out people who just wanted to go to space. They were like, we want the bitch that wants to go to space the most. And that was Kristen McCall. Um, so wow. after they narrow it down to 10, she goes to the Johnson Space Center in Texas, which is also fun fact, I think where they have that NASA camp that you, they used to be commercials for. 
Oh, like space that camp. That seemed like the most. That they have like, like Disney original movies about going to space the camp. Most like, I want this epic. more than anything else. I in really my life. wanted it so badly. I used to talk about it all the time for like the length of the commercial, and then I would forget about it once it was no longer on. But so yeah, so Krista was much more into space than you or I. Um, so basically, she is like goes to in the summer before. She goes in in July, the summer before this launch, and they're basically like, quit your job, like you're a full-time payload specialist now, like we're training you on this NASA team. Like she was fully integrated into this NASA mission. Um, the, what does a payload specialist mean? Um, okay, so <laughs> based on my limited research, so I'm getting to it, I'm, I'm going to say the names of everybody else. So there's Francis Gobi, Michael Smith, who is the pilot, um, Ellison Onuzuka, Judith Resnick, and Ronald McNair. Um, and then Gregory Jarvis was the other payload specialist, which is when you conduct research for a different, like, company that's not NASA. Like, he was doing research for Hughes mm-hmm. Aircraft Company, and I think Krista was doing that, too, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Do not come for me. But anyway, she's married to her high school sweetheart. She has two kids, gets into this space program. She's 37, and, like, it's this huge deal where, like, they – Back then, I guess you could do something called, like, a closed circuit. It was, like, actual live television, I guess. I don't know. Whatever. It was pre-internet, but it it was a closed circuit. So they wheeled in, like, closed circuits to, like, all of these schools all over the country. So literally almost every – it's estimated that 17% of America watched this event live. Like, 17% of all people in in the country watched it live. Need to be seeing a therapist to Um, this day. Most of them are public school children, and then they say that – Within an hour, up to 85% of people knew of the explosion within one hour because it was that big of a deal. Yeah. So some interesting trivia, like the Space Shuttle Challenger, it was only its 10th flight. uh, Or sorry, it was its 10th flight. Like I just thought it was one thing it was doing, you know. But it's a a true shuttle. It's like a Southwest shuttle from like BWI to Hartford. (laughs) Like it would go back and forth, back and forth. And it's actually the same shuttle that Sally Ride became the first woman in space. Um to do basically um so anyway so they were basically just their mission was to deploy a tracking satellite um and then another satellite that would follow Haley's comet tbt for all you 90s kids out there (laughs) we were hip to Haley's comet um and mark twain baby (laughs) mark twain baby so anyway the morning of january 28th it's extremely cold they're in cape canaveral florida it's and it's 30 degrees which for florida is like insane and that it was apparently the bottom minimum of degrees you could do to take off so before they were supposed to take off like they had to pull people out and they were like scraping ice off the launch pad which is really messed up so finally they come in Krista's parents are there all the astronauts are there they're waving away you know millions of people are watching this live on television it's an extreme close-up there's reporters everywhere there's people giving live footage and you can like you watch it go up and up and up and then the guy that's talking it just, he is literally speechless like you can look this up on cnn like you just see it explode and everyone is just like oh my god <laughs> like just nothing and it's kind of crazy because it explodes and then there's like three main streams of smoke and one of them you can like see the shuttle crashing down the other one is like the launch pad exploding um but basically based on the remains they found it's also kind of known that several of the astronauts were not dead from the initial explosion but when they hit the ocean at terminal velocity they all died like that was not a survivable speed so like yeah it's also quite possible they ran out of oxygen long before that so they were unconscious or had died from well i I don't know it happens so fast rebecca it happens so fast yeah but if you lose pressure like 
it doesn't it's not the same as like holding your breath for the whole time like you you pass out very quickly if there's no okay fine whatever there's like no oxygen and it's depressurized that's why you have to put oxygen on in a plane so anyway (laughs) okay that's true but so anyway so krista was scheduled to plan she was going to teach two 15-minute lessons from space and and it was like part of this huge rollout that was going to go to all these schools like the teachers in space program and it was billed as the ultimate field trip which is so sad oh man i know so everyone watches her die um and so basically like I read the original Washington Post article of this woman who was there and, like, her initial reactions to the scene. And, and somebody was, like, when they first saw it, they were, like, oh, they're coming back, they're coming back. And then she Ugh. looks over at this guy, Malcolm McConnell, and he's, like, she's, like, where are they? And he's, like, dead. And he answers flatly, we lost him, God bless him. And they're just standing around the families. And the this writer described it as, like, Krista's parents were had just been crying happy tears, like, two minutes earlier from her daughter launching into space. And so they were still, like, looking at those tears drying on their faces, and they were just in complete shock, being like, this did not happen. So really quickly, immediate families of the astronauts are escorted away. Um, everyone's urged to leave immediately. Um, so it's kind of a beanstalk cloud. Like I said, it kind of hangs in the air um, and then breaks into smaller puffs. And the debris from the explosion, which was about 18 miles downrange from the Space Center, continued to fall into the ocean for nearly an hour and thwarted. Oh, so and there was so much smoke and shit that like it thwarted the search teams in helicopters. So planes and ships and everything trying to converge on that spot, it just didn't work. So they were unable to save them, obviously. So this was obviously a huge American tragedy. And it also captures a very specific moment in the American psyche. It's kind of this moment where we're past this like big baby boom era and we're still trying to figure out our identity and we're like maybe we're still into space and this is also not to forget like a key key moment in the cold war as well where it's really starting to thaw but we we still think of soviets as like those bastards that tried to get to the moon before us and like they're still doing all kinds of space stuff so i the reason i chose this to do is because someone sent me the speech the other day on the anniversary and i was so so moved by reagan's words um so just to give some respect to reagan he was obviously a movie star um an incredible public speaker and had a very magnetic like charisma and presence but this speech was actually written by peggy noonan who was his senior speechwriter at the time and um She's now, like, a big opinion person. Like, she's, like, a talking head on, like, ABC News and stuff all the time. She has, like, her own... WAPO opinion. Way to give her props. Well, I I mean, I am always like, oh, this person gave a great speech. Exactly. That's why I'm saying it was delivered brilliantly by Ron Ronald, but Peggy wrote this speech and she was, like, you know, a woman that, like, fought her way to the top at. in a conservative White House so she definitely deserves a shout out so props to Peggy I just props to Peggy and I just want to give her um I just want to read the end of the speech Reagan just starts and he's this is addressing the nation on live tv um so he opens just apologizing to the family saying you know we all witnessed something horrible he says all seven of their names um and then he gets to this part which really makes me upset in a in a good way but also in a bad way okay I'm just gonna do it okay we've grown used to wonders in this century It's hard to dazzle us, but for 25 years, the United States Space Program has been doing just that. We've grown used to the idea of space, and perhaps we forget that we've only just begun. We're still pioneers. They, the members of the Challenger crew, were pioneers. And I want to say something to the school children of America who are watching the live coverage of the shuttle's takeoff. 
I know it is hard to understand, but sometimes painful things like this happen. It's all part of the process of exploration and discovery. It's all part of taking a chance and expanding man's horizons. The future doesn't belong to the faint-hearted. It belongs to the brave. The Challenger crew is pulling us into the future and will continue to follow them. I've always had great faith in and respect for our space program, and what happened today does nothing to diminish it. We don't hide our space, our space program. We don't keep secrets and cover things up. We do it all up front and in public. That's the way freedom is, and we wouldn't change it for a minute. We'll continue our, spa- our quest in space. There will be more shuttle flights and more shuttle crews, and yes, more volunteers, more civilians, more teachers in space. Nothing ends here. Our hopes and our journeys continue. I want to add that I wish I could talk to every man and woman who works for NASA or has, who worked on this mission and tell them, your dedication and professionalism have moved, in a, have moved and impressed us for decades, and we know of your anguish. We share it. There's a coincidence today. On this day, 390 years ago, the great explorer Sir Francis Drake died aboard a ship off the coast of Panama. In his lifetime, the great frontiers were the oceans, and a historian later said, He lived by the sea, died on it, and was buried in it. Well, today we can say that of the Challenger crew. Their dedication was, like Drake's, complete. The crew of the space shuttle Challenger honored us by the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them, this morning, as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of Earth to touch the face of God. Wow. (laughs) It's so good. I was Peggy, pop Peggy, off. Peggy, go off. And she was. I was also reading this thing with her this morning where she said that that poem part at the end slipped the surly bonds of earth. She was just like, oh, yeah, I just remembered that from this random poem I read in seventh grade, which is called First Flight. Also want to shout out to that guy because he was a 19-year-old that died in, as an airman in World War II. His name's John Gillespie Maggie. Um, but yeah, so great writing all all, a lot, all around. Um, and, and shout out to Peggy Newton's seventh grade teacher for giving her that poem. Um, and yeah, so basically this was a huge event. Um, basically, they, it was such an upsetting, deeply traumatic thing for like everyone in America that they ha- they spent more money on the commission to figure out what happened with this launch with Challenger than they did on the commission on 9-11 which wow. is shocking, but it just goes to show you how important it is. Space is very complicated, too. Space is complicated, for sure. Do you know what happens? If you don't, I do. What do you mean? They, the, well, they Challenger. Says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, oh, I know, Rebecca. Don't, don't be rude. I know all about Are we going to get into the O-rings? Okay, we can like, get into just... the O-rings. Sure, you want to talk O-rings? Let's talk fucking O-rings. <laughs> okay, I didn't think we I didn't want to bore everybody with the O-rings, but I'll tell you. So basically, it started after a joint and its solid rocket booster failed at liftoff, um, and the failure of the O-ring seals used in the joint that were not designed Those to handle fucking O-rings. the unusually cold conditions. Um, and so basically, this was a huge failure of leadership. And so basically, that led to it all crumbling. You just all you need to know is O-rings. <laughs> but basically, it the broke O-rings up were the too orbiter. hard. They were too hard. But it's also really crazy because honestly, there were so many people that didn't want the launch to happen. It had already been delayed a couple times that day. Yep. It was supposed to happen like January 12th originally type of thing, but they moved it for weather. And it was definitely a case of like all the higher ups and commanding like, no, get this shit off the ground. Bureaucratic bullshit. Like That's it'll probably be fine. That's what killed Krista. Not just Krista, but six other people had dedicated their life to space and were true yeah. pioneers. So, so I have to ask. <laughs> okay, would you go to space? Would I go to space? Um, 
honestly, I'm not even that good at like going to the eighth floor of a building. <laughs> so I'm like yeah, standing same, on the roof. Same. So just as someone that doesn't like heights, I'm going to say no. But I do think like I get the appeal. I get the final frontierness mm. of it all. Like I sure. do like I, and I think it's there's something deeply American about that too. Like the idea that we are like pushing for the next boundary and like want to find the next thing. Sure, sure. So, I mean, I love space. I love a space program theoretically. Um, and I do think that like the universe probably has answers that we need to, in order to continue life on earth. Like, I think there's an immense um, value sure. to like the We've shit we can find. destroyed the planet. <laughs> yeah, sure. So we either need to find a new planet or find some shit on the other planets that are just going to fix this. Anyway, I'm pro. I'm looking outward. I'm no longer looking to the earth for answers. I'm like, somebody help us. Um, the stars. The stars will manifest. The stars it. will guide us. That's what I'm manifesting because, like I said, I think that the answers are within the universe as a as a manifester myself. So that's why I'm into space while also not wanting to go there. Would you go to space? I would like to think, in theory, I would, but I have to take 15 milligrams of Ativan just to get on a plane. <laughs> yeah, so same, like... same, 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 same. Um, so probably not. Um, I'm a huge, huge space odyssey. Oh, yeah, you love sci-fi. I have to take I have to take Xanax to fly, but I have to take, like, I take, like, two and a half Xanax, but I have to also be awake because the pilot might need yeah. me to take the lead. <laughs> So I've seen, sure, sure, sure. I've forgotten more about everything. I have recurring <laughs> dreams all the time where someone's like, guess what? You're the only person that can land this plane now and I have to do it. I and think that I could I, do yeah. it. I'm not afraid of that. That's not what I'm afraid of. I don't think you could. I think if you put me in I that cockpit, I know exactly what to do. Yeah, mm, doubt it. But I think that like if space advanced to a point where you weren't like floating around in zero gravity like if we had you know magnetic boots and like artificial gravity on a space station like i'd be more inclined to go but i don't like the idea you know being in space is terrible on your body like you get taller after three months in space because um, your bones get so all far stretchy. so good <laughs> I would be, oh my I would god like it sounds terrible taller no but i mean there's no way that living in space doesn't fuck up your body in a permanent way no but if you're like living in space you know science fiction space like the greatest point of reference i can give you actually there's two great points of reference but the first the og is battlestar galactica if it was battlestar galactica space <laughs> yes please or such a fucking loser the expanse space and i have decided that like my life's purpose is just to tell more people about the expanse which is the greatest what sci-fi. is like, the expanse I have preached, is it a show dude yes it's so so good you will love it like it's like you don't have to care about space at all to appreciate how great this show is <laughs> It is. So I'm reading the books right now. The books are Should also I good. Start it's like with the everything books? I wanted out of the Game of Thrones books, but like the writing's better. Better than Game and of it's, Thrones. So one of, the, yeah, and one of the writers was George R. R. Martin's assistant. Oh, like, I that's like his that. bio on the book. Well, George R. R. Martin used to write for the X Files and stuff. Like he's a weird, right. weird dude. And he <laughs> has are, a science fiction. Yeah, he has a uh, whole series as well. Well, I remember you telling me that when when we first both read the Game of Thrones books, and you were like, yeah, and I was yeah. so into him that I bought George R. 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 Martin's other books, and I'll tell you. They're not good. <laughs> like, out of respect I mean, I, for him. I, I didn't think, them. like, the writing and I, I was not, like, a fan of the writing in Game of Thrones at all. But, like, the Expanse series, it's um, it's not called The Expanse, the books. It's called, the first book's called Leviathan Wakes. Ooh. And I just finished Ooh, it, and it was great. Okay. So it's on Amazon Prime right now, if you're one of those Amazon Prime subscribers. <laughs> Jeff Bezos saved the show from cancellation from sci-fi. Okay, well, Jeff Bezos like, stepped out. Did you see that? He's not going to be CEO anymore. I did see that. I did. That's breaking news. Yeah. Uh, Crazy. <laughs> very topical. He stuff. couldn't handle the stonk market. 
Um, you had to get out. Well, okay, fine. But if we're just doing Amazon Prime Rex, this is just random, but you guys should all watch Flack on Amazon Prime. It's a young Anna Paquin. Well, it's not. She's not young. She's she's her Ooh. normal age. And she plays, like, a PR person living in London that, like, messes up all these celebrities' lives. But, like, she's really oh, messed up, Oh, I saw a, a preview. It's good? Yeah, you should just watch it. It's good. I mean, it might not even be okay. that good. I'm really in the thick of it. <laughs> but, but it is good. Right. You can cut this part out. But I'm straight up telling you, like... The Expanse is great TV. If you like space, watch it. It's fantastic. So, so good. Deserves all the Emmys. Space is not, is sweet. I would love to go if it was more civilized and less floating you just, around. So you're just either. not a frontiersman. You're like no, someone that's like, oh yeah, I'll move to California once I get the Golden yeah, Gate Bridge. I don't want to <laughs> like risk blowing up in an O-ring accident. Like I want to go to space when it's like taking a bus. Like when you can just like go to the moon. <laughs> well, that's the thing about in, like, Challenger though. It was hours. a bus. It was literally a shuttle. <laughs> Yeah. They don't call it a No, I don't want to be like in experiments like, no, I, I will go when it's secure. I feel that way about airplanes and they've been fine for decades. I feel like every time I get in an airplane, I'm like, I don't want to be someone's guinea pig here. Like, is this your <laughs> first time in a plane? Like, I, I don't understand how they stay up. So one day. You ask the pilot Elon that, Musk is going to get us there. I just hope that Elon Musk, that weird, sick freak, <laughs> figures yeah. out some other way to spend his time or than shooting XA-12. shit into space. Or Kyle, yeah. as I call him. Okay, I like to call him <laughs> Kyle because it's like the X makes Well, the he would Kai like that sound. too because it's a much better name okay, than his he- poor... Okay, hear me out. Hear me out. So it's spelled X, the weird A-E, and then like a, yeah. a Roman numeral. But it's like that is the, um, that's the Greek letter Kai. And then A-E makes sure. the I sound. And then there's, an, and then there's the, the Roman numeral too. So it's Kyle. I, I I swear to God, I believe in my heart that the Musks are sitting around calling him Kyle. Are you a I'm, Musk truther? I'm like, not a Musk truther. I hate him. I think he's such a creepy, weird, I weird too. man. I fear him. I, he's my like sleep paralysis demon. I just feel like I, I sometimes, the other day I couldn't sleep and I Googled like Elon Musk dad because I'm like, does that guy have a dad? I would bet that he doesn't. No, he sprang from somebody's head. Um, yeah, no, he's like a full-on chrono situation. Um, yes, yes. What? Oh, no, he does have a dad. Whoa. He's South African. He was a, he's a pilot, sailor, engineer. Don't love that. Of course, of course. A space pilot. (laughs) He's a space pilot. Um, yeah, but honestly, I hate Elon Musk and I hope he uses his alleged genius to fix something. Yeah, like everyone keeps saying he's a genius. I'm like, all I've seen are ugly trucks and I want to see Mars. So hop to it. Yeah. I don't want to see Mars though. There's nothing good for us on Mars. I want to see like Venus. I want to see the next universe. I have big plans for us. (laughs) You have to read The Expanse. The belt is where it's at. That's where all of the ice is and we're going to need water soon. I don't think we're going to need water that soon. (laughs) Oh my God, Blair. Okay, okay. I believe you. I'll watch it. I'll watch it. Okay, When we are old... You're gonna rue this day. I'm gonna play this back to you when we're well. I'm pretty sure my like, water. My New York City apartment is gonna be underwater when we're old. Like <laughs> New York well, City is just gonna we'll be a about sunken that. ship. Um. All right. That's fine. Wow. Well, I'll see you then. We <laughs> yeah, see you at the end of the world. Um, in the meantime, we've got a I think a little secret mini episode coming at you this week uh, oh in honor gosh. of Valentine's Day, my least favorite holiday. This is going to be a fun one, and and we'll share some Valentine's Day fun facts, and one of them involves my personal life. <laughs> wow! Wow! Laughs and facts. Laughs abound. and facts. Stay abound. tuned for our mini app. Stay tuned for our mini app. Um, bye.
Thank you for listening to Manifest Destiny, a millennial take on the American millennium. If you enjoyed our show, please leave us a positive review on your preferred podcast platform, but only if you enjoyed it. Looking for a history fix in between episodes of Manifest Destiny? Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Manifest Destiny Pod for exclusive content and quality memes.